My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And this is week four of Tough Questions. And so if you're new, you're visiting with us, we're just so grateful that you are here today talking about uh, the final tough question. Can we take the Bible literally? Can we trust the Bible? Uh, and if so, how do we even apply it to our lives? Somebody did point out earlier this week that why didn't you start with the Bible? Shouldn't it have been the first question? And where were you like three months ago when we planned this out? Um, but we got there. We got there. We're here today. And, uh, and for that, we will be looking uh, a little bit at 2 Timothy. You're welcome to turn to 2 Timothy 3. But I just want to back up first for a moment. I want you to think to a time in which someone in your life saw someone on YouTube or TikTok or the news or the radio. They heard someone say something that they learned about how you're doing life wrong and you need to change. And so they decided to share that with you, okay? Now, I just want us to imagine when someone, when, when a claim encounters us, confronts us, the way that we do things and perhaps nudges us towards change, I would propose that for nearly all of us, it goes through three filters in our minds. There's three questions that kind of prop up for some of us intuitively, subconsciously, others a little bit more at the forefront. Those questions are, do they really say that? Should I listen? And what do I do if so? You imagine a friend shares with you, they're drinking soda, a ton of it all of a sudden. They share, well, my dentist actually prescribed me to drink more soda for teeth health, okay? My mechanic told me that oil changes are for suckers. I only need to do one every 50,000 miles. The first filter, did they really say that? So I'm pretty sure you need a hearing aid, okay? First filter. But if what you hear is reasonable, substantial, let's say your dentist tells you, you need to cut this out of your diet. Or your doctor says, ooh, you need to trade some Netflix for some exercise. Or your mechanic says, you need to get your brakes redone. Things aren't looking good. But the next layer is, is this a person I can trust? Have they done the research? Are they an authority? Do they have the experience to be sharing what it is that they're sharing? And if that's the case, the final, and I would say most important question is, do you actually do anything about it? Do you make the change that's ultimately for your greatest good, even though it comes at a cost? Perhaps costing some sort of temporary pleasure you really enjoy. These are the questions that people bring to scripture. Now we approach the Bible in all sorts of different ways and people from different backgrounds. Some of you grew up in the church and this is all you've ever really known and it's been handled fairly well. Some of you come from a background in which this was a tool of abuse and manipulation. Some of you have a very healthy dose of skepticism in your life because of what th this has been used for. We realize that people come from all sorts of different places and backgrounds. But today, well, there's a lot of questions we can ask. The three that I'm gonna try to answer are, is the Bible, do, is the Bible that we have now what was written 2,000 years ago? If so, should we take it as an authority? And if so, how in the world do we interpret and apply this to our own lives? That's the plan. Bow your heads, I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, as we talk about your word, Lord, we pray for soft hearts. Lord, we pray for open minds. Lord, we pray that 
not just for people who are new, perhaps, Lord, to, to have more questions emerge, but for, for the seasoned people who've, who've known your word for decades, God, that, that something would be presented perhaps in a fresh kind of way. Lord, that you would challenge us, and Lord, that ultimately that these words wouldn't just stay on the page. Lord, that they would move into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, I mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16. This dude named Paul, 2,000 years ago, persecuted the church. Jesus met him on the side of the road. On the road, actually. Confronted him. He had such a life-changing encounter with Jesus, he went from persecuting the church to planning the church. Planting churches. He gave up his prestige, he gave up his power to be on the run himself. And Paul writes a letter to someone he was discipling named Timothy. And in that letter, chapter 3, he says something about Scripture, which I'm going to read here, verses 16 and 17. He writes that all Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired more literally in other translations, you'll see God breathed. And you might point out, wait a second, at the time, all Scripture would have been referring to the Old Testament. And you'd be right. But Paul isn't making a statement about what the Old Testament is. What he's making a statement about is everything that is Scripture is God-breathed. There are humans that haven't been born yet today. But if I say all humans have DNA, that applies just as equally to people born tomorrow, even though they're not here yet. What does he say about Scripture? All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, we're going to look at this verse and we're going to build out one assumption and two assertions. And those are our three points. This verse assumes that the word of God they had is, was reliably communicated and it asserts that that word is authoritative, being breathed out by God. And it asserts that that word is profitable for our lives. And that's the tact that we're going to take. Point number one, the Bible is reliable. Now, when this question pops up, when people have questions about the Bible, and I've heard this many times, hasn't it been corrupted? It's been 2,000 years. There's no way that the Bible that we have now was actually written 2,000 years ago. It was actually written by the people who knew Jesus. It was actually... What you get is, is this idea of telephone that pops up in people's mind. Now, we've played telephone, and... Generally, you start off with, you know, some, some, some statement, right? Abraham Lincoln was the best president. That's, that's an example. We can agree to disagree. But you start with that, and it goes around in the circle, and then you got little Jimmy, who is the one who just drops a bomb, and whatever is said, it doesn't matter. He's the one that just changes it. And so it comes all the way around, and by the time it gets to the end, the person's like, my dog likes to itch himself. And you don't know. That's the game of telephone. You have no idea where and how things break down. People assume that the Bible is the same way as 2,000 years. The history and the evidence don't bear that out. We have over 5,700 manuscripts of the Bible, averaging 350 pages long for 2 million pages, manuscripts of the Bible. If you were to include manuscripts that are not Greek, like Coptic and Latin, that number would go up to 24,000. But here's our issue, and here's the thing people drill at. Here's the problem, that if you take that 5,700 manuscripts, that there are 400,000 variants, variants 
A variant is when you have chapter one of John and chapter one of John and two different manuscripts. Every time there's a anything that's not exactly the same, they call that a variant. And in those 5,700 manuscripts, there's 400,000 of them. That seems like a big number. But then as you poke and prod, you learn that 99% of the variants don't affect the English translation. Because if I were to utter a sentence in English, you could say that sentence the same way in 10, 15, 20 different ways in Greek. Because in Greek, word order doesn't matter like it does in English. 99%. You would find that a lot of misspellings, punctuation, you would find that the same words or synonyms used. You would find that um, within those 400,000 variants, a lot of them, thousands of them were ascribed to what's called the movable new. You know how in English we have to add that N to the end of the word A when it comes before a vowel? Like you can't say A apple, you have to say an apple. In Greek it's the same. And sometimes they leave it out. In fact, thousands of times they did. Thousands of variants. 99% of them don't affect the meaning in English. But that still leaves us with 4,000 variants. What do you do? Well, about 2,000 of those are what Dr. James White would call are not viable. Viable, what does that mean? It means that no serious scholar actually considers them as a meaningful variant. Why? Because you'll have a pocket of manuscripts over hundreds and hundreds of years and all of a sudden one pops up in the 13th century that says something different. Or you'll have scribes that are copying two separate columns or three columns, and instead of copying column, 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 they copy this way instead. Didn't have their coffee that morning. About 2,000 of them just aren't viable. That leaves us with roughly 1,500 to 2,000 viable variants out of 5,700 manuscripts, 2 million pages tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of words. In the academic world, you know what you call that? You call that miraculous. Not only are there so few viable variants in scripture, but the manuscripts that we have go further back than anything else in history. We got a chart here, puts this well. The closer the circles are to the middle is the closer that the manuscript evidence is to the date it was written. The larger the circle is the larger the amount of manuscripts that we have. You can see things like Aristophanes, Tacitus, Sophocles, Homer, five, seven, 1200 years between the manuscripts that we have and when they were written. And the Bible was, we have manuscripts within a generation. Look at the amount of evidence. There is nothing more well attested in history, more verifiably accurate and authentic in all of ancient history than the New Testament. Sir Frederick Kenyon writes this, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down substantially as they were written has now been removed. He was a paleographer and manuscript expert. Bart Ehrman, the famous anti-Christian writer whose expertise is in textual criticism. He writes in Misquoting Jesus. In fact, most of the changes found in early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. No one came along to change the meaning. Far and away the most changes are the results of mistakes, pure and simple slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort or another. 
And you know what's beautiful about the system by which God and his sovereignty used for all of these copies to be made is that no one was in charge. It exploded all over the place, hundreds, thousands of manuscripts, different languages all over the Roman empire. At no point could any one person say, hey, 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 we're gonna rein it in. We're gonna change John to say this. You couldn't do it. And despite all that, the accuracy isn't comparable to anything else we have in history. But okay, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? I started with the New Testament because Jesus and his followers actually testify and authenticate the Old Testament by what they use. And we don't have time in this setting in a half hour to go into all the events of the Old Testament. I have these two books amongst others, the historical reliability of the New Testament and the reliability of the Old Testament. You like archeology, span you wanna talk about all the stuff these are here. You can take a picture of them after the service. But I will share one event from the Old Testament because it's one of my favorites. When I was in grad school, there was a professor who came. He gave a seminar. He did his grad work at Yale, his PhD work at Harvard in ancient Near Eastern studies. And the whole seminar was about all the times in history when critical scholars looked at the Bible and said, there's no way that happened. And then a few decades went by and archaeology proved that it did. Over and over and over again. And one of my favorites is at the end of the book of 2 Kings. You see, it says that Babylon came in and they just destroyed Judah. They took out one of their kings, they put him in prison, and his name was Jehoiachin. And he put in a puppet king, Zedekiah, instead. And eventually, that didn't play out, and so Babylon just took him out completely. But at the very end of the book, the very, very end, it says that the ruler of Babylon took Jehoiachin out of prison, put him at his table and gave him rations. And what did the critical scholars say? There's no way a Babylonian king would do that. Everything that we know about ancient Near Eastern literature and cultures, this must have been added hundreds of years later by someone just to give hope to the people of Israel. And then what did they discover in an archeological dig? They discovered a rationing tablet a Babylonian rationing tablet. And on it is King Jehoiachin. He was given his title back on this tablet, King Jehoiachin of Judah. Just one of many, many examples. Again, if you're interested, you can come check this out for more. But even if what we have in the New Testament is reliably what was written, even if it speaks truly of events, that begs the question, do I actually have to listen to it? Okay, yeah, it happened. Okay, that was actually written by those people. Okay, what we have now was what they had 2,000 years ago, but how does that translate into being an authority for me? Well, I'm gonna start with the Christians on that. You see, for Christians, we start with Jesus. We believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be that he's God in the flesh, that he came, lived the perfect life that we couldn't to die the death that we deserve. We believe that he went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, but didn't stay dead, that he rose from the grave on the third day. Something we would call a historically verifiable fact. We actually have these for sale out there. Cold Case Christianity talks about historical evidence for the resurrection. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, how did Jesus look at the Bible, at the Old Testament? How did he do it? He treated it like an authority. When he was in the wilderness with Satan, 
And Satan was tempting him over and over and over again. What did he do? He quoted the Torah with authority. Dozens of times he echoes or quotes directly from the Old Testament, treating it like the very word of God with the very authority of God. And so if that's how Jesus was willing to treat the Old Testament, again, for us, for the Christians, that's how we, would be, we, we should be willing to take the Old Testament as well. But then something happened in the life and following of Jesus. The early followers of Jesus, the people who knew him well, largely commissioned by him and equipped by him, went into the world and they wrote letters and biographies as an extension of Jesus's authority. And these were circulated widely to the church. How do those people look at their writings? Well, our main man, Paul, right? Persecutor turned church planner, you remember him. First Thessalonians, he writes this letter to a church, the Thessalonians. This is why we constantly thank God because when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, get it? That Paul had communicated what was the word of God. You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Second Thessalonians. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. First Corinthians to another church in Corinth. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. How did Paul see what he was doing? Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, Peter, whom Jesus said, on you, I'm going to build my church. That Peter in 2 Peter actually refers to Paul's writings as scripture. What about the gospels? Luke, as an example, Dr. Craig Evans, historian, he writes, Luke does not see himself primarily as a biographer, nor even a historian. Luke, by the way, has recorded the life of Jesus, if you're new to this. The Lucan evangelist is a writer of scripture, a hagiographer, fancy word for a writer of, of sacredness, who is proclaiming what God has accomplished among us. And N.T. Wright perhaps sums it up best. It used to be said, N.T. Wright writes, that's weird, N.T. Wright writes, that the New Testament writers didn't think they were writing, quote, scripture, but that is hard to sustain historically today. At precisely those point of urgent need, Paul is most conscious that he is writing as one authorized by the apostolic call he received from Jesus Christ and in the power of the spirit to bring life and order to the church by his words. So we see a people commissioned by Jesus who claimed to be God, who authenticated that claim with the cross and that they were empowered and commissioned by Jesus to go out and to write extensions of that authority. But there's still a lot of room for skepticism. And you may be here and, okay, so Jesus considered things to be authoritative and the followers of Jesus considered those to be authoritative, but do I need to consider them to be authoritative? Let's say you're an atheist, perhaps an agnostic, because those are far more common. You don't have to take a stand. What is your ultimate authority for truth? What is your ultimate authority for morality? What is your ultimate authority for determining what's just? If you're absolutely honest, the majority of you would say that it's your reason, your mind. It's the most common answer. 
And if we just peek and poke at your worldview, I would, I would ask, how did that mind, how did that reason come to be? And the majority of the people in this camp would respond with naturalistic evolution, naturalistic meaning godless, okay? Naturalistic evolution. Now, never mind all the evidence and the arguments people have made against that over the years. There's been a lot of holes poked in naturalistic evolution by people who are not Christians or religious at all. Those will make their way into textbooks in another 10 or 20 years. Tom Nagel, actually, philosopher at NYU, he's an atheist. He wrote this really fun book, Mind and Cosmos, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. All right, he's an atheist. That's a fun one. But let's just assume that it's true that naturalistic evolution is true, that you evolved without God, let's assume it's true. Hear this, evolution guarantees a mind that can survive, not a mind that can be certain about truth. Evolution guarantees a mind that can survive, not a mind that can be certain about truth. Alvin Planning, a philosopher at Notre Dame, has pointed out There are plenty of scenarios in which a mind that believes lies about the world can survive just as well as a mind that believes truth. Evolution doesn't produce certainty. Evolution produces survival, and there's a difference. Your worldview doesn't support a mind that can be certain about truth. Let's go one step further. If naturalistic evolution in a godless universe is true, if that's true, then dignity and morality and justice are subjective ideas developed and implemented according to the whims of people. Moral facts are based on what I or what we want. The question becomes how many people in a subjective society have to want slavery for it to be a moral good? Dignity in a godless worldview is an abstract concept that you and I get to assign to people or choose. And thus it can be just as easily stripped away. Justice, what is justice in a godless world? It is nothing more than those in power enforcing their opinions on everyone else, it's subjective. We come up with what's just. You can't tie it to anything fixed. And so the question is how many people have to agree that poverty is just to make it so? I would contend that no one actually lives this way. No one actually acts this way, why? Because you don't live like naturalistic evolution is true, you live like the Bible is true. We live like Genesis 1.27 is true when it says God made humanity in his image and that no person regardless of sex, sexuality, culture, or creed carries any less dignity than anyone else because we bear God's image. Would you consider that perhaps we live like Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 are true? that the moral law of God is fixed, transcendent, and attached to a transcendent law as a transcendent justice. A justice that does not waver with who is in power, a justice that is persistent, that seeks to defend the poor, provide for the widow and the orphan, to unfold the marginalized and the oppressed. God is love and justice is a dimension of that love. And because God doesn't change, justice doesn't change with a political party, party or the whims of our culture. I believe our world is full of people who live like this is true. They're not living consistent with their worldview. And then they turn around and they criticize the very assumptions that the Bible gives them to operate with. Let's go one more step. 
If I were to ask you how you knew your reason was authoritative, you would tell me that your reason tells you so. It's a circular argument. It's not bad, but you can't criticize us when we make the same argument. How do I know the Bible's authoritative? Well, the Bible attests to its authority. We just did the same thing. The question becomes, which one of those makes more sense of the world? Dignity, justice, beauty, morality, the cross. You throw God's word into the ring with every other ultimate authority in our world, and I would contend that God's word would come out on top every time. At least it has in my life. But just because this is reliably authentic and just because perhaps we should treat it as an authority in order to make the most sense out of not just the world but our own personal experience, the last filter, the last question is, well, what am I supposed to do with it? What do I do now? How do I respond? Well, Paul writes to Timothy that it's profitable for rebuking, correcting, training, teaching. But before you get there, we gotta admit, people get all sorts of weird with the Bible. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago. People get a little intimidated, it's a little confusing. I don't know where to start. You got poetry in the Bible, you got letters, you got this thing called apocalyptic literature. That's Daniel and Revelation, by the way, it's not all that. You got biographies. And we don't read all those genres the same way. How do we do this? Well, you could take a full class on how to interpret the Bible and I'm gonna boil it down into two, two questions that we ask, two questions. What it, does it mean to them? What does it mean for me? The Bible is profitable for us, but it begins with us asking these two questions. Notice one of the questions is not, what does it mean to me? Because if I ask, what does it mean to you? You'll make it mean whatever's most convenient for you. We ask the question, what does it mean to them? The ones who wrote it, the ones inspired by God, so that we can ask the question, what does it mean for me? And what that does is it allows us to pierce through a lot of the noise and the crazy in our world. In fact, I came up with two examples of how we do this. Before we get to the profitable part, how we apply it to our lives, two examples in scripture of how we ask these two questions, right? The first one's kind of spicy, throw it up there. Ooh. There's lots of interesting things online. The pandemic made this little example even more interesting. Lots of stuff out there. Well, what if we start with these two questions? I'm talking to the unbelievers, or I'm talking about to the skeptics, the people who don't believe the Bible is true. You may believe a lot of things about the Bible simply because of how you see people treat this number. Let's start with these two questions. And I would contend that it's far more reasonable than you think. John wrote, the, John wrote Revelation in the first century. And you see this number here. You might be interested to find out that, that coins circulated throughout the Roman Empire that had Nero Augustus and his Nero, an emperor, had his title on the coins. And there was a practice called gematria that was common to the day. And what gematria is, is you take a letter and you ascribe a numerical value to it and then you combine the letters of a name or a title and it gives you a number. And when you took that coin of Nero, who was a persecutor of the church, an opposer of the church, when you took that and you did gematria, you ended up with the number 666. Now it gets even more interesting. 
because there's a part of the empire in which a different coin was circulating in which a shorter version of Nero's name was on that coin. And in that part of the empire, the Greek manuscripts of Revelation didn't have the word, the number 666. They had the number 661 because it corresponded to the coins from that part of the empire. You might be interested to learn that there was this thing called the cult of the emperor, that they worshiped him as the son of God. And if you only chose to worship Jesus, you were removed from that. You were disbanded from parts of the economy. You could not buy or sell or participate. And for the last 2,000 years, those who refused 666 have not been able to participate in certain parts of the society as they reject worship of the powers and principalities of this world. Now we ask, what did it mean to John? So we can ask the question, what does it mean for me? Well, for you and for me, that means that no matter what competes for our worship in this world, we are to stay faithful to Jesus because he comes through, no matter the cost. That's what it means for us. There's another example, one that I've heard several objections on. I don't think it's going to be up here. In Genesis, have, have, have people pointed out, you know, all you Christians, you say you can only be married to one person, okay? Monogamy, the old fuddy-duddies your monogamy. Well, how come in the Old Testament, God tells people to marry multiple people? What? You really do that? Well, yeah, in Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they have multiple wives. So you open it up and you ask the question, what did it mean to them? Well, you look at what Moses was writing. And one thing he makes pretty darn clear is that when a man marries more than one woman, he ends up miserable. There's nothing prescribed about that. It doesn't turn out good. But you ask the question, what did it mean to them? Well, that even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and everyone after them had their faults and their failures, God continued to remain faithful to his promises no matter what. That today, for you and I, no matter our faults and failures, that God continues to remain faithful to his promises for us. As we open up the word, these are the questions we got to ask. What did it mean to them? What does it mean for us? And after we ask that questions, after we peel back some of the historical and the cultural layers, then we arrive at a profitable word for what? Rebuking and correcting. Those are strong words. But what kind of person is willing to rebuke and correct? A parent who truly loves their child. A person who truly loves their friends. You know, the friend who watches you do all the self-destructive things and doesn't say anything because they want you to just kind of enjoy the temporary pleasure, that's not a friend. They do not love you. But God confronts us. His authority, his word, it confronts us. It rebukes us, it corrects us because his design for our life is far more full of satisfaction and joy than any design we have for our lives. And so we go to the word with those questions, we listen and we receive. But it doesn't just rebuke and correct, it teaches. God's word will teach you about who he is, what he's done, the world that he's designed, how it's, he's designed it to be as well as what he's purposed for you. Finally, his word trains in righteousness, equipping for good works because God's word isn't meant to stay on the page. 
Lots of Christians get very tempted to, to use this to stalk Jesus. Creepers. What do I mean by that? You learn a ton of facts about him and you never go near him. You're that person in that movie, right? That teenage boy who watches that girl from afar and learns all these things about her, walks around with a little lock of her hair in her pocket. It's weird. You learn all these facts about Jesus, but you don't let him anywhere near you because you know that he wouldn't leave you there, but that he'd demand change and it'd be for your own good, but it would come at a cost. The Bible's truly authoritative. It rebukes, it corrects, it teaches, but it trains in righteousness. It actually affects us. As we get to know Jesus and building our intimacy with Jesus, the grace and the love of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is transformational. And if God's word is true, if it's authoritative, then we have to open it up. We have to let it saturate our minds. We have to let that trickle flood our hearts and let it move into our lives. This is how we fill our marriages with self-control and grace. This is how we fill our parenting with patience and gentleness. This is how we fill our workplaces with kindness and goodness. And this is how we fill our lives with joy despite the trial or the hardship. God's word is reliable, authoritative. I would say, particularly to the Christian, perhaps you've gotten too comfortable with this and you're forgetting just how profitable it is. And as you leave today, my exhortation is don't leave the words on the page. If you're new to all this and you have more questions, great. I'm a skeptic at heart. It's kind of who I am. I love to ask hard questions. I love research and I'm a skeptic, and perhaps that's you. And if so, I encourage you, feel free to come up here and talk more after the service. But for the believer who perhaps learned something new about their Bibles today, I would encourage you not to let it gather dust. It's not what it's for. As I said before, don't leave the words on the page. Bow your heads, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go from here, May we not take your word for granted. Lord, may we not take the life of Jesus for granted. May we not take the movement of the Holy Spirit for granted. May we lean on your truth. May we treat it like it is what it is. We ask that you would invade our lives, the corners and crevices in our hearts, the things that we've hidden. Lord, that your grace, that your mercy, that your compassion Lord, would invade those places. Help us to be beacons of light and love in this world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.